I'd ask you to turn with me now in your Bibles, please, to the third letter of John. We're dividing our study of this letter into three, uh, really hanging each part on the hook of John's statements to this man, Gaius, uh, beloved. And so we'll read the first and the second section, which will take us from the first to the tenth verse. The Elder, that's John the Apostle. To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brothers came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brothers and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brothers and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Let's pray. Gracious God, we love your kingdom, and so we pray that you would this evening instruct us as to how we ought to live and work within it. We ask our Father that you would grant to us your light and much love, so that we may do all that we ought to do and be all that we ought to be, to the praise of your great name. Amen. As we said last week, as we began to look at this very short New Testament letter, (coughs) the aim of the whole is really to exalt and to cultivate truth and love. But because of the realities of kingdom life in a fallen world, John is obliged to sketch out that truth and love both by way of light and shadow in the experience of the particular congregation to which he is writing. Last week we met Gaius, a man in whom John delights, whom he loves in truth. There's a shared bond because these are both men who love and serve God in Christ. And John rejoiced greatly when certain brothers came and testified of the truth that is in Gaius, just as he walked in the truth. And then John gave that general statement that there is no greater joy for a spiritual father than to hear that his children are walking in truth. Well, John is going now in this next section to flesh out the commendation, the good report that he's heard concerning Gaius. But we're also going to meet another man. His name is Diotrephes. And the example of Diotrephes shows us that in this church Satan is also at work to undermine the affection among the saints, to hinder the activity of God's people and to foster antagonism in the congregation. These then are painful realities, but men like Gaius need to face those facts and to endure in the face of such facts. So let's begin with a commendation of gospel hospitality, the first few verses, 5 through to 8. The gospel grace of hospitality is commended repeatedly through our New Testament. Hospitality is mentioned, for example, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 13 that the saints are to be given to hospitality. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2, we're encouraged to give hospitality because some have done so and have entertained angels without really knowing it. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9, we are to be hospitable to one another without grumbling. 
In fact, hospitality is one of those indispensable characteristics of any man who's going to be a pastor in God's church. If a man is not hospitable, he is not to be an elder. Now there's no indication that Gaius is an elder in this church, but he certainly is a model for hospitality. Beloved, says John, in this language that oozes his genuine affection for this true brother, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brothers and for strangers who've borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. First of all, you can see here a faithful labour. You do faithfully whatever you do. Gaius works in a way that displays his gospel credentials. He's a man who's walking in the truth. A man who's living a life that testifies to his attachment to God in Christ. And the work that he does in this sphere is a testimony to his commitment to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A man who's walking in the truth is going to be a man who does faithfully whatever he does. Every time Gaius has an opportunity to invest in this way, he seizes it with both hands. He's an eager, energetic, conscientious and diligent Christian man seizing his opportunities to demonstrate his love for God and for his people in these particular matters. The second thing you notice here is that Gaius shows a generous love. You do faithfully whatever you do for the brothers and for strangers. Now, to whom does John refer? Is he talking about the brothers, the people in the church, and strangers, those who are not part of the congregation to which Gaius belongs? Uh, That's possible. Uh, He's not talking about strange brothers, as if you can just run those things together, although we know that there are a few of those around. He's probably talking about those who are brothers, but also strangers to Gaius until he met them. One of the things that runs through the second and the third letter of John is this idea that preachers are being sent out, probably from Ephesus, where John the Elder, the old apostle, is living, and those preachers are carrying the gospel out into Asia around about Ephesus. And it's these men to whom John is probably referring, as we'll see in a moment, that they are men who Gaius never knew. But they arrive probably with a letter of commendation from John saying, these men have come out from us to be preachers of the gospel. And having been commended by John the Apostle, Gaius embraces them with his whole heart. These are the ones who've gone back to John and made him rejoice greatly, verse 3, when brothers came and testified of the truth that is in you. When these preachers, these travelling missionaries have arrived, Gaius has done everything in his power as a child of God to help them along the way. Born witness of your love before the church if you send them forward on their journey. These men travelled light and they were relying upon men like Gaius to give them lodging for one or two nights perhaps, food and drink, and then to equip them for the next stage on their journey. Gaius had never set eyes on these people until they arrived on his doorstep and said, We're from John. And when they came, he welcomed them into his home, he provided for them, cared for them, supplied them, sent them on their way to go about the business of God. Gaius works a faithful labour with a generous love to a high standard. You do faithfully whatever you do if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Gaius is to work to this high standard of excellence. 
he is to work as it were worthy of heaven itself do you remember how our Lord speaks of the assessment that he's going to make when he comes again to judge the world there will be those who are in prison those who are hungry those who are thirsty who belonged to him and Christ will commend the righteous and say that inasmuch as you visited those who were in prison fed those who were hungry gave water to those who were thirsty clothed those who were naked insomuch as you did it to one of the least of them you did it to me and that may be something that lies behind what Gaius is commended to here that you are to work as to the Lord you are to treat these men Gaius and you are treating them as if they were Christ himself you're showing this high esteem of them you're doing for them what you would do if Christ himself were amongst you that calls Gaius not just to do what he has to do but everything he can do think of it yourself if you knew and I trust this is not in any way a, a demeaning thought but if you honestly thought that the incarnate Christ would be staying with you for a couple of days what sort of treatment would you give him? John says Gaius when these preachers come you treat them in a manner worthy of God a manner that reflects their heavenly business and a manner that testifies that you're doing it to them as to the Lord himself now wouldn't that dignify and elevate some of the mundane tasks this washing, that clearing, that serving all of a sudden they say, but I'm doing it for Christ in a manner worthy of God and all of a sudden even the most ordinary labours suddenly seem to take on a new and rich significance it's a high and holy standard because these men are doing a vital work they are going forth verse 7 for the sake of the name now we have that translated in our Bible for his name's sake but when John's writing to Gaius there is only one name and these men are going forth for the sake of the name they are going forth because of their attachment to the person and work of Jesus Christ because they want to make him known they are going forth in order to declare the gospel the free grace of God in Jesus Christ but in order to do that they want to take nothing from the Gentiles and John's probably referring now to generally to those who are outside of the Christian congregation you think of the brothers who've been working with us in Charwood and in Maidenbower suppose we went up to one of the doors and knocked on and said um, hello, we're from uh, Maidenbower Baptist Church in Crawley and uh, we've come to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ who saves people from their sins because we are all uh, made in the image of God each one of us has a soul that will never die and each one of us is destined either for heaven or for hell and the one who makes a difference between the two is Jesus the Christ to trust in him is to be assured of heaven to turn your back upon him is to go to hell by the way you don't happen to have an apple do you? wouldn't that seem a little odd? my feet are a little tired ma'am do you mind if I come in and rest before I tell you a bit more about the Lord Christ? Mm, that dinner smelt you wouldn't mind if we sat can you see how that would undermine what you were trying to do? if as you went you had to beg for food asked to be paid for your time you need help to get back to your home at the end of the day in this environment there were travelling preachers those who followed false gods there's one famous boast that one man went about preaching on behalf of his idol and returned home with 70 bags of money it's a well known fact that you'd go out begging collecting money as you went and you'd live effectively off your earnings these men are preaching a gospel of free grace and they're determined to do so freely 
They're not going to be freeloaders in that sense. They're not going to demand of the people to whom they are offering something, some kind of payment in order to sustain the work. You remember how the Lord uh, spoke through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 14, that Christ-like spirit, we do not seek your own, but you. We're not after your stuff. We're trying to contribute. We're trying to invest in. We're trying to communicate something that will do good to your souls. And it would potentially compromise the gospel if you gave the sense that someone has to pay for the privilege of hearing it. And so in order to go out and make Christ known freely in every sense, these preachers are relying on the investment of other Christians so that the Gentiles can hear the good news. They're going forth for the sake of the name and they're relying upon other saints to enable them to proclaim the gospel wherever they go without needing to beg or depend upon those to whom they are preaching. And that brings us then to this general encouragement. Because again, John opens this up now. We, Gaius, I, myself, and you, and other Christians like us, we therefore ought to receive such men that we may become fellow workers for the truth. This is the glorious business of making Christ known in the earth. And John now offers this general encouragement that we should receive such, that we should welcome and support such gospel labourers, that we should pray for and invest in the making known of the Lord Jesus Christ. The counterpoint to this is found in the second letter of John in verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine of God in Christ, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. If someone comes along and they're teaching a false gospel and you help them, you share in their evil deeds. But we, Gaius, when these men are preaching a true gospel, we become fellow workers for the truth by our investment in them. We love them in the truth. We share this common desire that many would come to know and believe in our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so we cooperate with them and we become co-laborers, fellow workers for the truth. We share in their good works. There's no indication, as I've said, that Gaius is an elder. There's not even any sense here that he has some particular gift for teaching himself. But he can help those who do teach. You see, many of us are never going to be preachers. We're not called and we're not constituted. But we can support those who are so called. We can free their hands to pray and to minister the word of God. We can liberate men who are gifted, identified and sent so that they can give themselves to the work of preaching and in doing so we become fellow workers for the truth. We may never, as it were, stand on the platform to proclaim Christ, but we can make sure that the platform is well built so that Christ may be proclaimed. Here then is Gaius, commended for his gospel hospitality, his faithful labour, his generous love, his high standard, investing in this vital work about which we are given a general encouragement. Brothers and sisters, that commendation, I suggest, ought to fill our hearts with comfort and joy. Because it is likely that at times, and I acknowledge that I may have contributed to this sense, we may feel that because we're not called to be on the front line, there's something wrong with us. That we ought to feel guilty, because we can't be next up standing on the milk crate to preach in the open air because we just knock on somebody's door and our, our tongue suddenly feels like it's been tied in knots and rubbed with sand so that even if we could untie it it's too dry to say anything 
Not everybody is so constituted for that kind of work. And yet there is not one of us who cannot make an investment in the war effort taken altogether. Think of an army. There are those who stand on the front lines, the teeth arms, so called. Those men on the front lines, the teeth arms, succeed in large measure because of the massive logistical operation that goes on all the way back to the homeland that is constantly feeding, investing, equipping and preparing. So when it all comes to a point at the front, those who are doing that business are receiving the investment and support. They are effectively communicating the effort of everyone and everything that lies behind. And that is no bad picture of the Church of Christ in her gospel labours. There may not be many who are going out, as it were, onto the front lines, but every member has a part to play in the logistical operation that lies behind. And brothers and sisters, those who invest in this way become fellow workers for the truth. We share in the privilege and we share in the blessing of making Christ known in the earth. Now some of us are able to do that individually, but certainly those of us who contribute to the coffers of this congregation, you see year by year when the financial accounts come through, the congregations that we've been supporting, the preachers who have been invested in, some of the missionaries that we are caring for, in this way, though we may very rarely have opportunities ourselves to do some of that work, we are becoming fellow workers for the truth. Every one of us is a vital cog in the gospel machine. It tells us also, reminds us, that the church is God's missionary agency. The church is the place from which men are sent out. The church is the place from which men are supported. We are to send out and support gospel preachers near and far. And to that end we must be alert to all our opportunities because these men go for the sake of the name. And for the very same reason we are seeking to support them prayerfully and financially. We are getting behind them and we too must consider the sacrifices that we are privileged to make for the sake of the name. To work in a way that is worthy of God. That our investments, our prayers, our gifts, our contributions, our fellowship when they come amongst us, our opportunity sometimes, as it were, to bounce them along internationally when they fly in from somewhere else on their way to another country. Those contributions, all of them, however mundane, are they being done in a manner worthy of God? What a privilege to invest in the going forth of the gospel by means that may seem in some sense so ordinary. I wonder what report we get from the brothers and the strangers. The people who just pitch up or the people who we hear get a phone call one day. There's a man called so-and-so, and he's on his way to such-and-such such a place, and he's going to be in London for a couple of days. Can you put him up? <sighs> yes, fine. And this man we've never seen before turns up at Gatwick or at Heathrow, or phones up and says, I'm Mr. So-and-so, I'm here on a station somewhere in... Crowley? Crowley? Yes, yes, we know where you are, we'll come and get you. What report will they take back of this congregation? If they're here with us for a couple of days, overnight, if you get a phone call from one of the deacons, brother, sister, do you think you could put somebody up in your home? We've got, we've got three this week and we don't know where we're going to put them. Are you ready to sacrifice for the sake of the name, to invest in the spread of the kingdom? Do we leave a foul stench or a sweet aroma in the nostrils of such gospel labourers. 
And perhaps we also need to ask, am I just a giver or can I also be a goer? See, I don't think Gaius made his giving an excuse not to exercise his opportunities in his own limited sphere. He may not have been a great preacher, he may not have been a preacher at all, but I am fairly confident that a man like Gaius would have been known as a man who witnessed not just by his deeds but by his words to Jesus Christ. Those of his household would have known what kind of man he was. So in our own sphere we need to be faithful both as givers and as goers. It may not be what will you sacrifice for the sake of the name but who? Who will go for us? Who will go from this place on behalf of God? It may be that we are still to see some of those who we hope will be converted, who come in, trained, raised up and sent forth. And some of those, brothers and sisters, may be our own sons. Are you praying to that end, preparing for that end, for the sake of the name? Are you assessing yourself? Is there something that I could do by way of going as well as by way of giving? Maybe not being sent out and set apart for the work, but how may I invest in this glorious work? And then, and just more generally, I think we'd do well to learn from the Apostle John the holy art of commendation and encouragement. Because John is not ashamed to tell Gaius how happy he is at the reports he's received and to encourage him because of everything that he's done so far. Now, it may be that we live with this funny fear that if we say something positive about what somebody's done that that will be the cue when they give up. Or it may be that we're afraid that they will become proud if we say thank you and well done. Bear in mind that we're about to be introduced to Diotrephes, the man who loves to be top dog. And John still unashamedly commends and praises Gaius for the good things that he has done. Perhaps even more so as we shall see because there's a Diotrephes in the offing. You see, a gracious man can appreciate generous words and receive them with a proper gratitude and they will encourage him not to pride but to greater humility and not to laziness but to greater activity do you honestly think that when Gaius got this note from John he said ooh scored my points there I can uh, shut up shop now I've done my business what do you think he thought a manner worthy of God what a privilege I wonder when the next stranger brothers are coming into town let's learn then to take appropriate opportunities to identify and commend what is well done in the cause of Jesus Christ let us be ready to give and to receive and properly respond to such words because we need them especially if there is a man like Diotrephes around and here we turn from the light to the shadows, from a commendation of gospel hospitality to a condemnation of arrogant hostility. I wrote to the church, says John, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore if I come I will call to mind his deeds which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brothers and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Now again, we don't know a great deal about this man, Diotrephes. It's probable, at least possible, that he's a member of the same congregation as Gaius, it may even be that he is an officer in the church. Some commentators suggest he may even be one of or the sole elder. It's at least some way clear from what we read that he has a measure of influence and power because he can forbid people to do certain things and put them out of the church. Gaius, we said last week, is quite a common name. Diotrephes is a very uncommon name. 
And again, some people have traced from this the possibility that Diotrephes was born and bred to the nobility, that he was a, a man of, of native wealth and stature, status, and that it's quite possible that that has bred a spirit of assumption, presumption and arrogance in Diotrephes. It's also quite possible that he was a spoiled kid. Sons and daughters to whom no one ever says no are being sent in the direction of Diotrephes. Diotrephes isn't a man who can take a no. Not a man who can have his will crossed. And if we as parents don't learn to invest in the character of our children by drawing lines especially in a place where they enjoy so many privileges then we're in danger of fostering a Diotrephes spirit see Diotrephes won't even listen to an apostle I wrote to the church but Diotrephes who loves to have the preeminence among them does not receive us the first thing we see in Diotrephes is a proud spirit this is a man who likes the first place and the last word he is a man who will not be governed he has a persistent desire to be top dog imagine him as a man perhaps who gets sullen whenever he doesn't get his own way a man who's a bully quite content to back somebody into a corner and to badger them or to berate them until he gets what he wants He's a control freak of the worst kind. Those of you men who are in business, you probably know people who you sort of think, I wonder if that's like Diotrephes, empire building. You ever been in the environment? Oh, that guy's just an empire builder. He's trying to accumulate uh, influence. He wants power. He wants a bigger budget. He wants to make sure his division is in charge of everybody else's. That's the kind of man Diotrephes was, but in the church. See, Diotrephes loves authority as long as it's his. He hates it whenever it's being exercised by somebody else. And Diotrephes' problem is not the legitimate possession and legitimate exercise of legitimate authority. We shouldn't read this and say, well, authority is clearly a bad thing. Diotrephes' problem is that he seizes authority that probably doesn't belong to him and then abuses it as soon as he's got it. He loves authority for its own sake and therefore he resents every challenge and threat. Diotrephes is a man who sees the world like a ladder and he's only happy when he's standing on the top rung and he's deeply suspicious of anybody he suspects climbing up behind him. Diotrephes is a man who hasn't learned one of the first lessons of Christianity. Who in all things has the preeminence according to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18? It is Christ. And the man who will rival an apostle will rival his saviour. Diotrephes has not grasped what our Lord says, for example, in Matthew's Gospel and chapter 20. saying to the apostles, to the disciples in verses 26 <clears throat> it shall not be so among you whoever desires to become great among you let him be your servant and whoever desires to be first among you let him be your slave just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many or again in chapter 23 and verse 6 they love the best places at feasts the best seats in the synagogue Diotrephes loves the best seat Diotrephes can't understand why would you serve others in order to get to the top? You've got to get to the top. And once you get to the top, you can do what you like. And whether it's because he's a wealthy man who can 
govern the purse strings in order to accomplish what he wants, whether it's because he's just bigger and uglier than everybody else who can force them to do what he pleases, whether it's because he's an eloquent man who can make somebody think that they thought something else than they did just a few minutes before, we don't know. But Diotrephes has found a way to climb up and to kick down anybody else who comes behind him. It's a proud spirit. And he manifests a broad aggression. Gaius receives these brothers and strangers when they come out bearing a letter from John, but Diotrephes resists and resents them. The letter that John wrote to the church is probably that letter of commendation or another one like it that says, these men have come from Ephesus to be preachers of the gospel. Signed, John the Elder. And Diotrephes has got that letter and so many people suggest he's probably burnt it. He's, he's thrown it away one way or the other. He resists apostolic authority and he resents apostolic delegates. Because Diotrephes, being the kind of man he is, suspects everybody who intrudes into his sphere. If you think that life is like a ladder, as soon as somebody else puts their hand on a rung, you're going to get really upset. Because that kind of man might be just about after your position. And so Diotrephes will not brook anybody who looks like they might be treading on his toes. How does he manifest that? By means of this malicious temper. John describes three channels by which he's resisting apostolic authority and apostolic delegates. The first is by means of wicked words. I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. Diotrephes is the source of a bubbling stream of slander directed against John and gospel preachers. It's a vicious but vacuous verbal assault upon the men of God. There's no truth in this, but Diotrephes takes every opportunity to tell other people what kind of men they you, you know you, you can't rely on John he's an old man after all you're not quite sure where he is these days I don't think he's made a proper assessment of these men did you, did you know they came into my house and this is what they did did you know this is how they spoke to my wife did you know this is how they dealt with this man I even heard that they did take money from the Gentiles after all there's no truth to these, but Diotrephes has got this stream of words that are designed to undermine and poison the minds of everybody about John and the preachers. Wicked words and wicked deeds. He himself does not receive the brothers. Now, Diotrephes, again, go back to 2 John 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Do not receive the heretic. Diotrephes is treating preachers of the gospel as if they were heretics. Diotrephes has got the whole thing back to front. He's doing everything in his power to keep these gospel preachers as far away as he can from my house and my church, because that's how he sees it. It's his own personal fiefdom. It's the place where he rules. Wicked words, wicked deeds, and wicked influence. Not only does he not receive them himself, but he forbids those who want to, putting them out of the church. Diotrephes is intimidating the people who want to do what John the Apostle is encouraging them to do. He is influencing them, he is restraining them, he's got his network of watchers out there to see where they're going and who they're staying with and Diotrephes is ready if he's got some authority in the church or some influence at least to stir up other people to the point where those who he John's words and help to foster the gospel preaching are being excommunicated from the church of Jesus Christ for their pains I wonder if now we begin to understand why Gaius needs encouragement 
because if this man Diotrephes is in the same congregation then Gaius risks being excommunicated for doing what is righteous heeding the word of the apostle and helping along the way those who preach the gospel it's a proud spirit it's a broad aggression he shows a malicious temper and he gets a severe warning if I come I will call to mind his deeds which he does you remember how James writes in chapter 4 and verse 6 God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble Diocrephes is going to get some resistance and he's going to get it from the apostle John himself and again the sense of this language is not I might come but when I come there is going to be a personal public and righteous confrontation and this humble this proud man rather is going to be humbled his spirit is going to receive a censure and his actions are going to receive a rebuke you know what they used to call John when he was younger don't you Boanerges one of the sons of thunder you get the feeling don't you that Diotrephes may soon learn that the old man's got a few thunderbolts left in his armoury and that he is not prepared to brook this kind of man making the church of Christ his own personal fiefdom and resisting and resenting the work of the gospel you see Diotrephes isn't just a, a bad apple Diotrephes is opposing and undermining the gospel and the kingdom of God and John says that the tyrannical abuses of power are going to be identified and addressed by means of a real and righteous authority so that's why we can't read this and say that John's saying that there really isn't any place for any kind of authority in the church because it can be abused no he's saying that if you abuse your authority there's a righteous and real and robust exercise of legitimate authority that can be employed to put things right we have no idea what was the outcome of John's meeting with Diotrephes but when was the last time you heard of a proud man taking a rebuke well Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 8 do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you rebuke a wise man and he will love you or Proverbs 17 and verse 10 rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool who knows how Diotrephes the proud responded to his humbling what do we make of this man Diotrephes especially in contrast with Gaius well brothers and sisters may I suggest that each one of us looks very carefully this evening into the mirror of God's word and sees if there are any marks of Diotrephes and his spirit in our faces and in our lives there are some questions that you might wish to ask yourself how do I view and respond to the authority of others in the church or anywhere else how do I react when my will gets crossed when I don't like the way that things are being done what is my attitude to others especially when they tread on my toes do I have this idea that I've got my piece of the pie that I've got my empire and that no one but no one is going to take an inch of my territory away from me you might also ask yourself how many diatrophies do you think there are in the church because you know the strange thing about diatrophies when Diotrephes reads a passage about Diotrephes, Diotrephes thinks that the church is full of Diotrephes. All those proud men 
who are trying to take my place. Diotrephes is suspicious. He thinks everybody else is playing the same game. Everybody else has got their own system for getting to the top. I don't for one moment excuse the elders or the deacons from this because we have been given especially the elders a measure of legitimate authority and it is too easy for that authority to be abused but in several of the commentators there was more or less this same statement made in each one that personal vanity and the resenting of authority lie at the root of almost every problem that cripples the local church. The merest whiff of a diatrophies brings trouble into the congregation. Personal vanity and the distaste for legitimate authority lie at the root of almost every problem that comes into the local church. Brothers and sisters, we need to check the mirror. To do so with some regularity, because it only takes one diotrephes, unrestrained and unopposed, to wreak havoc in a local church. That man, or it could be that woman, who seeks authority and wants to rule the roost. If it's not the man who's doing it himself, there are unscrupulous women who will use their husbands as their puppets to play exactly the same game. The problem is that you are a proud man. How do I know? Because I am also a proud man. Because every one of us is by nature proud. That's the root of sin in some respects. Whose will rules? Mine or God's? What does pride say? Pride says, I'm in charge. I'll do my thing my way. And that's the way that your nature has chosen to live every moment of every day till God in his mercy grasped you and made you see that you are not the centre of the universe. None of us is exempt from the need to make these kind of assessments. It is why we need to cultivate true humility. If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Gaius tried to help his brothers up the ladder. Diotrephes tried to stamp on their fingers and keep them down. We need to pray for and to cultivate a Christ-like humility. And we need to confront hostility when it arises in the church. Praying that we would be spared it and remembering that God gives grace to the humble and so as we see this counterpoint this light and this shadow this Gaius, this Diotrephes let us undertake in dependence upon the spirit of Christ that each one of us will say my words, my deeds my influence in and from this congregation will not restrain or undermine gospel ministry and gospel endeavour. God, keep me from being a diatrophies. Make me a promoter and an advancer. Make me, O oh Lord, a Gaius. Give me that man's spirit. And keep me alert to any indication that diatrophies is rearing his ugly head in me. Are you a man, are you a woman who sweetens the atmosphere of this church? Or do you bring with you a note of sourness? Are you distracting 
demanding, deterring from the making known of Jesus Christ? Or are you labouring in a manner worthy of God to make this a place of spiritual health, a place in which the gospel sounds forth because you, like Gaius, do faithfully whatever you do for the brothers and for strangers. They can bear witness of your love before the church that you send them forth on their journey in a manner worthy of God and so do well that you are labouring for the sake of the name just as they are and that by labouring in this way you can rest your head at night knowing that you are a fellow worker for God's truth Amen Gracious God, Diotrephes terrifies us Because when we are most like him, we are probably most satisfied in ourselves. When we are most confident that we're more like Gaius, that may be the very evidence of a Diotrephes spirit in us. What a tragedy that we can pride ourselves in our imagined humility. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for every time our proud spirits and our vain hearts have demanded the preeminence, have wanted to be the top dog, have devoted our resources of mind and heart and pocket to getting our way, doing our thing, and making our will felt. Lord, make the mind of Christ to be in every one of us. Make the model of Gaius more evident among us that we, O Lord, may turn our backs upon all arrogance of spirit and all malice of thoughts and words and influence, that we may faithfully and humbly invest ourselves and our all in the making known of Christ the Crucified One, that many others may come to share the privileges of our inheritance with the saints in the light. Lord, glorify your name. Restrain wickedness here. Prosper godliness. Help us to encourage one another toward that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.